Good morning to you. Grab your Bibles. We are in 2 Thessalonians again. We're in chapter 2, midway. And as we press on in our discussion of Paul's letters to the Thessalonian believers. In 2019, popular author and pastor Josh Harris made a startling statement on Instagram. And that was this, that he and his wife Shannon... We're getting a divorce after many, many years of marriage. You may not be familiar with Josh Harris by, by name. Perhaps uh, you know him by a book that he's written, and, which is why the statement of their divorce was so startling for some, so concerning. That is because he was the author of the Christian bestseller, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. That book was written when he was 21 years of age, a Christian but single, uh, and it was all about pursuing Christian marriage from God's perspective. And if that wasn't shocking enough, a week after his announcement that, his wife, that his, uh, he and his wife and their marriage were dis- being uh, disillusioned, Josh Harris made another Instagram post, this time about his faith and the state of his faith, and this is what he said. He said, I've undergone a massive shift in regards to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The, the, the biblical phrase is falling away. And he continues to write, he says, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. People tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. His wife, Shannon, also made similar statements along the way. And they're not the only ones, by the way. Uh, Other well-known Christians uh, have announced that they've left the faith. I'm thinking of Abraham Piper, who is the son of of one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, who is on TikTok quite a bit in, in offering his views that oppose the Christian faith. Or Kevin Max, you may not be familiar with him, but he was part of a, one of the most famous Christian groups, uh, contemporary Christian groups, DC Talk, who has declared himself to be uh, what he claims to be an ex-evangelical. In fact, that's what a lot of these that are leaving the faith are calling themselves. What they're really going through is a process known as Christian deconstructionism. They're deconstructing their faith with the hopes of somehow putting the pieces back together, reconstructing it into something better. But most end up embracing some form of progressive Christianity at best or atheism and agnosticism at worst. And often it seems that they're leaving uh, over issues related not to truth, but it's relational. They, they want to be in a relationship perhaps that's not condoned by, by Scripture, or they want to be accepted by others who hold views that are different than the, the Christian viewpoint, or maybe they don't want to be held accountable by other people, and they, they don't want that relationship struggle, or maybe there's some kind of relational harm that they've had because they were a part of a church and someone misbehaved toward them. That's not to say that these that are deconstructing their faith don't have objections to the truth claims of Christianity. It just seems for many that their objections are secondary as if they're seeking some kind of justification for the relational concerns of the faith. And I'm going to tell you, this, all of this saddens me. Now, anytime someone says, I once believed, but I no longer believe, that's, that's a troubling thing, is it not? Because if what the Bible says is true, if what this word has to say is true, their, their departures from the faith, it's not only tragic, it's dangerous, spiritually speaking. But it also affirms what I believe to be a core focus of our church and why the focus of our church is right, 
standing upon the Word of God and the sovereignty of, of, of the Word of God, that, that God's Word matters, that the truth matters, and that we need to stand firm in the truth, but also help others uh, to do so as well. Now, we have been journeying through the study of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and if you're new to us, uh, let me go ahead and explain to you that we, we very much love God's Word around here. We believe in it. We, we trust in it. We believe that the Lord has given us His Word. And because of that, because we so value the Word of God, we spend time in it. We spend time in it in our personal time with the Lord. We spend time in it in our community groups. We spend time in it for those who are part of our D group ministry, opening up God's Word and being encouraged by God's Word, uh, understanding what the Lord has to say to us because He is continuing to speak in holy writ. He's given us this word that we might know him and know who we are in light of him and how we should live. And we spend a lot of time going through God's word, even in our times of worship. It's my practice to often take a book of the Bible and to work our ways through it. And we've been doing that uh, through 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thess Thessalonians. And we now find ourselves in the second chapter of the 2 Thessalonians, right in the middle of this chapter. Last week, we looked at the first portion of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, and we learned about Paul's perspective on the coming of the man of lawlessness, who will come one day preceding the return of Christ. And in the middle of all of that, we, we were encouraged to not be deceived, knowing there's a great deception that's coming, but also we're very well aware that there, is, there are those today that are experiencing great deception. But a great deception is coming one day, and we need to be prepared for it. In fact, today we're going to be following up on Paul's comments, his follow-up comments to this discussion about this coming great deception and, and what he calls the Thessalonians to do in light of it, but also calling us to do, which is to stand firm in the truth, which is the truth of the gospel and the truth of his word. Again, we believe that God's word is the truth. We're not commanded by the Scriptures to do this, but we do it as a way to showing our, our fealty to the Lord and our belief that His Word is an honorable thing, that there is nothing like it uh, that has been put to pen. And so we're going to stand in the honor of reading of God's Word. Would you do that? Would you join me as I stand and you stand? And we read this, this together before I open up the Word and, and teach from it and preach from it. We believe that this is God's holy and inerrant word. We can trust it through and through. Here is what Paul writes. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he writes this. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we know we live in, an, in a time in this world in which there is a spirit 
not of universal absolute truth, but a truth however a person wants to make it out to be. Lord, we may believe whatever we choose to believe, but if you have defined truth to be a thing, if what we believe does not line up with your truth, then it is falsehood. So Lord, we want to live our lives based on truth and not what is false. And so Lord, as we embrace the, the, the belief of Scripture, as we believe in the truth, believe in your word, and we hold to it, may we also seek to live it out day by day. That though the storms of cultural waves come against us and try to rock us off center, may we be found faithful, standing firm no matter what. Lord, we believe what your word has to say is true. And if so, Lord, that what we are living and what we are experiencing in this moment is not all there is to life, but eternity awaits us out there. And Lord, how we embrace the truth today will impact what our eternity looks like. So we ask, Lord, that you would encourage us this day as you encourage the Thessalonians with Paul's words a long time ago, that we stand true and remain true in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> as a reminder, these words that were written were written by Paul to the Christians in, Thessalon in Thessalonica. And uh, they were new to the faith. When they received this, they hadn't been Christians for a very long time, very young in the faith. Um, they had been led to the faith by, by Paul. They had been instructed in the faith, but they were suffering. The locals, uh, as this new upstart religion that, the, that was based on this person who lived far away and had, been, had died, this Christianity, this was a foreign religion to them. And the locals saw Christianity as a problem. And their response to Christianity uh, was persecution against those who claimed the, the, the claims of Christ. They wanted to make those who's, who said that Jesus was Lord, they wanted to make the lives of these new believers as uncomfortable as possible in order to get them to recant from their faith and embrace the faiths that were acceptable. And so that's what they did. Again, it was the Apostle Paul who had brought the gospel to them. He loved them. He desired good for them. He was forced out of that community because of the persecution. He was elsewhere, uh, but he wanted those Christians who were from that community to remain true, to hang in there. And so even though he couldn't be with them in person, he's writing this letter, the second letter that he has written, to encourage them to hold true. He didn't want them to be deceived by a strong delusion. He wanted them, uh, did not want them to succumb to outside pressure. He didn't want them believing what is false. Instead, he wanted them to stand firm in the faith and to stand firm in the truth. And so he's encouraging them by thanking them and thanking the Lord for them. And so I'd like to, to look at this Thanksgiving challenge, uh, this offering, and see some challenges. In fact, there are three challenges that he encourages them to keep doing, but I believe he encourages us to be doing in light of the one truth. I'd like to share with them with you uh, during the course of this message. Here's the first challenge. If you and I are going to stand, because we know that the culture is warring against us. Now, there was a season in this country in which people would embrace a Judeo-Christian viewpoint, a Judeo-Christian ethic when it comes to what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not true. But we are past those days. And if you hold to absolute truth, you're, you're seen almost as a Neanderthal. 
Uh, if you don't hold to the idea that truth is relative, that you can have your own personal truth, and that your truth and someone else's truth don't necessarily have to line up for them both to be true, if that is not your perspective, it's going to be difficult to stand firm in what we believe to be the truth. So if you are to stand firm, here are three things that we're going to need to do, and here's the first. The first begins with our belief. We need to believe the truth. Now, what is the truth, you may ask? Because we now, again, live in a time where people want to make truth out to be personal. It's your truth versus their truth, and all of that supersedes absolute truth. Well, the truth that Paul talks about is the truth of the Word of God, the truth of the gospel, the truth of salvation. In fact, go back to verse 13. In fact, let's read 13 and 14 together. It sort of uh, stands together. He says, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers. So here he is patting them on the back. And then he refers to them as the beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And then this key phrase, and belief in the truth. Belief in the truth. He said, because you've believed in the truth, verse 14, to this he's called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we have in verses 13 and 14 is really a little mini lesson on salvation and the process of how it unfolded for them. Consider where salvation begins. It really begins with love. As he says there in verse 14, or 13, as he is thanking them for what God has done through them, he refers to them as brothers, beloved beloved by the Lord. They were the Lord's beloved. God loved them. This is a reminder that their salvation, our salvation, your salvation, it begins with love. God loves you. And just so we are clear about this, God loves you first. It doesn't start with you. In fact, the apostle John noted this in 1 John chapter 4 verse 13. We love, why? Because he first loved us. So God loves us first. We don't love him first. And it's out of this love that God has for us that he saves us, that he chooses to save us. Isn't that what Jesus himself said? Jesus, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So why did God save the Thessalonians? Well, why did he save you? Because he loved you. He loved them. He loved you. You see, there was nothing about them that warranted God's love. In fact, it was just the opposite. You see, we don't deserve God's love. We do not deserve it. We, we rejected him. We rebelled against him. We sinned against him. And yet God loves us anyway. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates or shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. It was out of God's love for us that he sent his son to die for us. And God shows his love to us even though we don't deserve it, even though we, we rebelled against him. And he did so by sending his son to die. But because God loved us first, you know what that means then? It means God chose us. We didn't choose him. Which is why then Paul writes in verse 13 this simple phrase, but God chose you. Isn't it an awesome thought to know that God chose you? To know that God chose you means that God could have not chosen you. But he opted to choose you because God chose you, as he says here to them, as the first fruits to be saved. Now before we deal with this idea of God's choosing, let, let, let's discuss 
what it meant for them as to be chosen as the first fruits to be saved. There's some debate about what, why Paul used that language of first fruits here. It's likely that Paul was in, trying to, encouraging the, to, to encourage them by saying this. There, there were a few of, in number in Thessalonica. When a lot of people in Thessalonica that were claiming to know Jesus, uh, they were being persecuted by the majority. They're a small minority. The majority is persecuting them. But the fact that Paul would say to them, look, you are the first fruits of those who are chosen of God for salvation means that there's more fruit to come. You're just the first. More will follow you. More will be saved. Your number is going to grow. And so that probably meant to, for them to be a, a word of encouragement. You, you're not as many as you're going to be. So don't be disheartened. You're saved, yes, but more will be saved. Of course, the bigger question in our minds probably has to do with God's choosing us for salvation. So why, why does God choose us? Why, why can we not choose him first? Well, it's simply this. It's because of our sinful state. Christian, hear this. Non-Christian, hear this. It is impossible for you to choose God. And the reason why is because of your sin. You didn't wake up one day and suddenly say, you know, I think today's a good day for me to go after Jesus. You, no, that's not how it worked. You were saved because God made the first move towards you. It's always been that way. I mean, think about Adam in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, who approached whom first? Was it Adam approaching God or was it, was it God approaching Adam? It was God pursuing Adam. When Moses fled Egypt and he was wandering in the wilderness and he, he encountered the burning bush, who, who caused all of that to happen? It was God, not Moses. When Paul was chasing the Christians, trying to persecute them on the road to Damascus, who was it that cried out to the other? Was it, was it Paul that cried out to God? Or was it God who blinded him on the road to Damascus and, and called down to him from heaven? Every single time someone gets right with the Lord, guess who it starts with? It starts with God. He's the one that chooses, not us. That's my testimony. On my own... It was not in my nature to seek after God. Why is that? Because I was a sinner. Because I was caught up in sin. And because I, of my sin, I was spiritually dead. That's essentially what Paul proclaims in the book of Ephesians. I want you to listen to this. In fact, why don't you take a left-hand turn in your scriptures, go a few books over to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 2. So you're taking a left-hand turn out of 2 Thessalonians, past 1 Thessalonians, uh, past Colossians, Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Listen to this. And Paul's writing about what it's like before you're a Christian, okay? He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what Paul is writing in, in Ephesians chapter 2 is that before you became a Christian, before you were reborn, you were spiritually dead. And so as a spiritually dead person, how did we walk? Paul says, well, you followed the course of this world, which means that we live like the rest that did not know Jesus. We live, we thought, we acted like spiritually dead people. Why? Because we were spiritually dead people. 
And so that's what it's like before you come to know Christ. So let me ask you, what can a dead person do? Go ahead. This is the audience participation part. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Just lie there, right? A dead person can do nothing. And if you believe in zombies, we're not going to talk that, all right? (laughs) Zombies aren't real. It's just a TV show, all right? Nothing. The dead can do nothing. The dead do not breathe. The The dead do not talk. The dead do not think. The dead do not walk. And so as spiritually dead people, it's impossible in our sinful, our natural state to pursue God. However, and I hope you're still in Ephesians 2, Paul says that God did something that we could not do. Verse 4 says, but God, so, but God now, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See what's happening there? God making a decision, his choice, and and he does the work to make us alive. And so it's a reminder that without him doing something, we are still dead in our sin, which means we cannot believe. And if you cannot believe, you will not see the kingdom of God. So so God does this for a reason. It's so that we then can respond in faith. This is where belief comes comes in. All right, go back to 2 Thessalonians and look at, 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 at verse 13 again. He says, God chose you, because we couldn't choose him, as the first fruits to be saved. Then he says this, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God chooses us to be saved how? Well, it's through the sanctification of the Spirit. So what is that? Well, sanctification is basically what we talk about when we talk about being set apart as holy. And so the sanctification by the Spirit Is the Holy Spirit God doing the work of cleansing us, making us holy, setting us apart? It's a reminder again that salvation is of the Lord. He initiates it, but once he initiates it, we now have the opportunity to respond. We must respond. And he then enables us to do what we cannot do on our own. We can then believe the truth. Now again, this is the work of of, of, of God. If you've experienced salvation, you had nothing to do with that. You would have never believed the truth without God choosing you to be saved, without the work of the Holy Spirit. But then notice how that comes about. It comes about as Christians extend the gospel call. Look at verse 14. He says, to this he called you through our gospel. So we can believe the truth. Now that we have the truth, he calls us to share the good news. We were called to the gospel. We now share the gospel. And listen, I know some of the language that Paul employs here and where he employs elsewhere often raises a lot of questions. Paul talks about God's choosing. He talks about God's election. He talks about God's predestination. And we could, we could try to unpack all of that. You know, scholars have been trying to unpack that for, for years. There's a lot of mystery surrounding it. We have folks that land on either side of the equation when it comes to God's sovereignty versus man's involvement in, 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 in salvation. But regardless of where you personally land, one thing is certain, one thing is uh, particular that we must do, we must all share the gospel. Paul, the very same guy who was inspired by the Spirit of God to write about God's choice and, and election and predestination, also wrote this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And and how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And so faith comes by from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This tells us that the Lord himself draws people to himself through the work of the Spirit of God as, as God's people proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He calls you through the gospel. So what specifically then is this gospel? This gospel is that Jesus saves, that Jesus did what was necessary to be saved. The gospel is simply this, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he came back to life all according to the scriptures. That is because he is God and that he paid the penalty for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus died in our place. That is the truth. And if you want to be saved, you have to believe this. Do you believe it? Do you believe the truth? If not, but if you'd like to believe the truth, you're going to have an opportunity to do that even this day. But if you have believed the truth already, there is some more good news in this text. It's shared at the end of verse 14. He says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So obtaining the glory of, of Jesus, that, that is the culmination. That is the end result of you trusting and believing in the truth. To those who have been redeemed by, by Jesus, they're going to share in his glory one day. You know, I, I used to be in a fraternity in college. You may not be aware of that. That may shock you a little bit because, uh, you know, my, my reason to be in a, in a fraternity isn't what, what it was for most. You know, different guys and, and girls, when they get into some sorority or fraternity, they do so for varying reasons. Some do so because they want to have the college experience and others want to, to have, you know, a, a ready-to-go set of friends. Others may want to party a little bit. I actually joined a fraternity for one reason and one reason only, and that was so I'd have opportunities to share the gospel. Because uh, I was working at a church, most of the people I related to and had interaction with were all at the church, and I found myself as in, in a prime time and season of my life in college where I'm supposed to know and have interaction with more lost people than any other time in my life, and I wanted to have opportunity to share the gospel, and so you know, what better way to have a lot of, of friends who didn't know Jesus very quickly? Join a fraternity. May it not make, make sense to you, it made sense to me, all right? I, I, there was one particular fellow that, that was a, a fraternity brother that I spoke a lot about the gospel to. We had lots of gospel conversations. He was the most eager to talk about spiritual things, but it was almost a game for him. I mean, he, he, I felt like at first I thought he was being genuine. The more we went along, the more I thought, you know, he's just trying to find a way to cause me to stumble, to, to cause me to not believe. Because we would have a conversation and he'd say, you know, I was thinking about that. And he would throw up some objection and I wouldn't always have the answer. And so I'll, I'll tell you what, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. And, and so our conversation would go back and forth over many weeks. Uh, and he would throw up one objection. I would respond to it. He'd come up with something else. And after a while, uh, he started running out of objections. And I, I finally got to the point, I realized, you know, he's just been putting me off, putting me off. And I said, look, You've been throwing out all of these objections, and I just got to ask you, if, if I can answer with satisfaction every objection that you have, would you then be willing to turn to Christ and seek forgiveness from him? He said, you know, eventually, but not yet. He said, honestly, I, I think what you're saying is true, but I, I just want to live my life for a little bit more longer. I want to have fun in this season of life. You know, there's so many people who think that if they'll just get saved, they're, they're, they're going to miss out 
on the best part of life. But that, that, that's not true. In fact, it's just the opposite. Everything worthwhile in life is found in Jesus. Our fulfillment is found in him. And by believing the truth, believing in the gospel, it leads you to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not forget who he is. He is the Son of God. Yes, he is God, present even at the beginning of all creation. So imagine anything better than obtaining the glory, uh, receiving and participating and experiencing in the glory of the God of the universe who created everything. Can you come up with something better? Can you think of anything that would make life more fulfilling than that? You see, the gospel elevates us to, the, to our highest place. Everything that our hearts long for are to be found in Jesus. And one day, you're going to enter into eternity, and if, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you will experience his glory forever. And what it's going to be like, we can only imagine. But believing this truth is going to help you to stand firm. And listen, I know that was a long point. There's so much going on in that section of Scripture, but there is, there's more to be shared here about how to stand firm even though the culture pushes against us, though, though you're being attempted to be deceived, to stand firm in the faith, here's, here's another thing to do. Believe in the truth. Hold to the truth. Hold to the truth. Consider verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. We, we, we talked a little bit about God's sovereignty God's choice, his work, that, that doesn't exclude us and, 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 nor excuse us from doing some things. We, we have responsibility too. We, we've got some things that we need to do. Paul describes one of those things in two phrases. He says we need to stand firm and hold to the traditions. This idea of standing firm is the idea that you're maintaining your position, you're holding your ground. The, 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 the picture that we get is someone who's bracing themselves from some kind of force that's going to try to force them off kilter. You know, my, my children were little. We would get in the pool with them. Uh, they, they thought it would be a fun thing to try to dunk their dad under the water. And so they would, you know, they would, they would you know, start circling around me and try to get others to be a part of it. And you know what I would do when, when the time come? I just sort of did this, and I braced. Anybody ever done that? Dad, Mom, you did that, you know? And here they come, and they're climbing on top of me and trying to pull me. But, the, the, but my foundation was strong, and my foundation was secure. Paul is giving this as a, as, a, as a visual picture for us for spiritual firm foundation. He's calling us to, to hold firm and to stand strong so that we do not topple over spiritually. The other phrase gives a similar idea when he talks about holding to the traditions. The idea is that you're keeping a strong grip. You grab a hold and you, you do not let go. And Paul says specifically, he wants us to hold on to the traditions or the teachings that they have been given. Now be very careful here. He's not talking about church traditions. He's not talking about the traditions you and I have been grown up with. He's talking about the practices of the faith that Paul was instilling in them that we now can believe has been included in the scriptures. He's talking about the gospel, the word, basically the truth. So he's talking about holding on to the traditions. He's talking about holding on to the truth. So we, we believe the truth, yes, but we hold on to it. We grab a hold of it tight and we don't let go. We stand firm in it and, and stand firm in the truth of the gospel. 
And you know what I think about when I think of this? I, th I think of a tug-of-war competition. If you've ever been a part of a tug-of-war, you know that strength has uh, something to do with it, of course. But if you know much about physics and you know much about uh, tug-of-war, it's not always the strongest who win. Strength has something to do with it, yes, but there are two other things very important, which is your stance and your grip. If you don't stand your ground and if you don't hold on tight, uh, you, you, you're going you're gonna to slip. If you don't, you'll be pulled off center. And so to me, it's, it's as if the church today is in a, a tug-of-war effort for the truth. We're being pulled this way and that, and our responsibility is to stand firm and to hold on to the truth. Now, there's another thing we're to do in addition to holding on to the truth, and that is to live out the truth. If we're going to stand firm, we must live it out. By the way, this isn't something we do in our own strength. God is working on our behalf so that we're able to do so. Look at verses 16 and 17. He said, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So here Paul is praying for us. He's saying, this is my intercession for you. Here's what I'm, I'm laying before the Lord on your behalf. I'm praying that the Lord would empower you to do what you cannot do in your own strength, to live out the faith and to, to believe and hold to that truth. Now, you know, the Lord doesn't tell us what to do without also then giving us the, the means to, to fulfill it. He doesn't tell us what to do and then leave us on to our own devices. He saves us and then helps us to live these truths out. So notice two things that he's done for us based on Paul's words here in verses 16 and 17. He's loved us and he gave us. This is what he did in the past, but they have ongoing implications. His love for us points back to the, to the cross. It points back to what Jesus did for us on the cross. He died for us because he loved us, but he also still loves us. Amen? But he's also given to us. and He's given us a couple of things. He's given us his eternal comfort. You see that there? That, that is, uh, can also mean encouragement. Um, but it's an encouragement that, that doesn't end. It's, an, it's eternal. It's everlasting. We have it now, but we're going to have it in eternity. It's never going to stop coming. And when we get to heaven, we're going to keep on experiencing it. And let me tell you, everyone needs a little bit of comfort from time to time. Everyone needs some encouragement. Everyone needs a little pat on the back. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to uh, share a, a private moment I have with a former staff member. I've not shared this with maybe more than two or three people. Um, and I don't have his permission, but he's not here, so I'm going to share it anyway. This, this happened to be with Philip Haynes. Maybe you've been around for a while. Pastor Philip Haynes had been with our church for 25 or, or more years. Uh, was our senior associate pastor, worked for many, many years with our, our, our pastor emeritus, uh, Ed Johnson. And uh, he was here before my time, and uh, I'm, I'm speaking of Philip. He was here when our church went through its struggles, and um, he was here when I arrived here 13 years ago. And we went through some struggles together before the Lord called him to go someplace else. And he had arrived here maybe in the last couple of years. Somebody had passed away, and he was going to participate in the funeral service. And we had a private moment over in the next building, and we were chatting. He was asking me how things were going, and I was sharing some of the good things that we were experiencing. And he paused and he looked at me and he said, you know, I know it's been hard for you here. He said, but you do know you were the right one to come pastor this church, don't you? And I will tell you folks, I didn't know that I needed to hear that word. 
but I needed to hear that word. I needed someone who wasn't a part of our, our, our congregation at that moment, who had known what we were going through and know the journey that we had been on. And I know that I've made mistakes as a pastor along the way, but I needed someone who could make a fair observation and say, hey, you know what? God's using you. God's using you. We all need a little encouragement sometimes, don't we? We all need to know that, that it's going to be all right. Everyone needs a little bit of a pat on the back along the way. Well, listen, the Lord himself gives it. He offers us good comfort, and he's going to keep on giving it to us, and it's not going to stop even when we get into eternity. It's going to keep on going. And if that doesn't help you live out your faith right now, friend, I don't know what else is going to help you. God is for you. He is for us. Listen, if that doesn't help you, I don't know what else will. Maybe a little hope will help you. In fact, Lord gives us, in addition to this comfort, to this encouragement, he gives us good hope through grace, he says. That means it's a hope that we get even though we don't receive it or don't need it. Let me rephrase that. Even though we don't deserve it. It's a hope we cannot earn, but God gives it to us anyway. It's a good hope. You see, because the Lord has saved us, we know that our, our future is, is secure. We don't have to fear what is to come. We know what is going to happen already. That's because in the end, we know that what's coming is eternal peace, eternal joy, and eternal love. Everything that gives life uh, its purpose, its meaning, its direction, we find in Jesus Christ through God's grace. And because the Lord has done these things, because he has loved us and because he has given to us He's then going to enable us to live this life he's called us to live. Look at verse 17 again. He says, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is Paul's prayer for them, and it's his prayer for us, that our hearts be comforted and that our hearts also be established in every good work and word. See, what, what he did before, those things that he did in the past have ongoing implications for us in, in good and great ways. As he's comforting our hearts, that is what, what he's been doing, what he keeps on doing, as he is establishing our hearts, strengthening our hearts, as he is doing that, he is empowering us to live out the, the, the truth. That's what he was referring to when he talks about every good work and word. The Lord wants our faith being demonstrated in our lives. He, he strengthens our hearts so that the words that we speak and the deeds that we perform will please him and, and bless other people. And then listen, I'm sure this can be a struggle for you from time to time. It may be a struggle very particularly for someone in this place. You want to live out the truth. You want to be obedient in every good work and word. And you've tried a lot, but you keep on failing. Perhaps it's because you're trying too hard. Have you ever thought about that? I'm not telling you not to try, but you're trying too hard, meaning you're relying on your strength and you're not relying on the Lord's strength. So often, Christian, we fail right there. We actually think it's based upon our ability and our strength. And when we're focused on that, we're, we're rejecting the idea that God is on our side. And the God who has called us to live out this faith is also the God who equips us and strengthens us and enables us to do so. So what we need to do is to lean into him. 
Lean into the one who can enable us to live it out, not ourselves, but into him. Yes, there is much that we can do, like getting into the word and and surrounding ourselves with Christian brothers and, and, and sisters in Christ, getting into Christian community. But the most important thing that you can do is to delight yourself in the Lord and to pray. And to say, God, I don't have what it takes to live this out. I know you want me to, but I don't have it. And so, Lord, as Paul prayed, I want to pray. And pray this prayer that that Paul prays in verse 17. And the thing is, is that if this prayer is fulfilled, guess what's going to happen? We're going to find ourselves standing firm in the faith after all. And that will further the kingdom and bring glory to him. So how do I summarize all that we've spoken about here? If I could say anything, it's this. The truth matters. God's truth matters. That's why we stand firm in it. It's why we hold to it. That's why we live it out. But before we do that, we have to believe it. See, I believe that this book contains the truth. I believe this from, the, from, from cover to cover. I believe that God has given this book, inspired others to write it, and that he's given it to us that we might know him and we might know about him, know his truth. And this truth that we find in the scripture tells us about God. It it talks about who we are. It talks about God's salvation that he provides through Jesus because we can never achieve salvation on our own because of our sin. And that once we come to know Christ, it lays out how we can live our lives for the glory of God. But we have to believe this truth. Do you believe this? Do you believe what the Bible says about you? The Bible says of you and me before we come to know Christ that we're sinners and we're separated from God because of our sin. And that we're living a life not the way God intended. God intended for you and I to know God and to be known by him, to have a relationship with him. But your sin separates you from, from, even before you're born, you're separated from God because of your sin, because of your sin nature. But God loved you enough to come to this earth to live a perfect life and to go to the cross and to lay his life down upon that cross. And there he died and he was buried. The scriptures tell us three days later, he came up out of the grave. It was a grand declaration that he was no ordinary man, but that he was God in the flesh, fully God, fully man who who had walked around on this earth. And that he, he had never committed one wrong thing, not one sin in his life. He was perfect because he was God. And to demonstrate that he had the power of God, he resurrected himself by the power of God. And as a result of his love and his choosing for you to hear this message, even this day, it may be that God himself is drawing you to him. Your response is to believe, to believe. There's only one way of being right with God, only one way of salvation, only one way to heaven, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ who died for your sins, was buried, and came back to life. And your response is to believe that he is God and to surrender your life to him. Yield your life to him because you cannot live this life. Only he can live it through you. Will you believe today? I want to have a word of prayer here in just a moment. But I want to extend this invitation first. And that invitation is this. If you have yet to believe, believe Jesus today. Believe the truth today. Come to faith in Jesus today. In fact, if you'd like to do that, when we conclude our service today, there's going to be a pastor off to the, to the right at the, at the cross. How appropriate is that we have a cross, symbolic of, of the, 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 the instrument of death of Jesus' life. 
But there'll be a pastor there as we finish. And if you'd like to know more, how about today you can believe in him. You can go and ask that pastor and say, I'd like to know more about how I can be saved. If you don't know anything to say, you say, look, tell me more about Jesus. And they'll talk to, with you about how today can be the day of your salvation. Now I'm going to have a word of prayer for you. And then we're going to move into another portion of our worship service that I'll explain in just a moment. So let me pray. Can I? Lord, I thank you that we have truth. Lord, we can't always comprehend the ramifications of this truth, but you enable us to believe enough. And I'm thankful that you loved us enough that you sent your son to die for us. And Lord, I'm grateful that you reached out to us and chose us when we could not choose you because of our sin, that you then enable us to say yes to you. And so, Lord, I pray that even now that your Holy Spirit that worked a long time ago to, to choose me, to draw me to you, to, to make me aware of my lostness and my sinfulness and, and how much I, I needed you, how much I, I couldn't do anything to be saved by you. And so, Lord, when the gospel was shared with me that I, I recognized that the only way for me to be right with you was to say yes to you, to confess my sin, to say yes to you, and to surrender my all to you in repentance. And so, Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today that you need to draw to you, that even now as I speak, that they sense the work of the Spirit of God in them, drawing them to you. You love them, Lord. Save them, we pray. Now, Lord, for the rest of us who've already been saved, Lord, let us not be like those who are tossed to and fro by the wind, but let us stand firm in our faith, believing it, holding to it, and living it out to the glory of God, knowing that one day, Lord, we're going to be with you forever. And Lord, let us be faithful with the gospel, sharing the gospel with all who would hear it. And may many come to be saved as we do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.